It's time for Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. Welcome to Moment of Truth. You are listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. And that, of course, is 95.7 in Ottawa, 106.5 in Toronto. And you could also be listening now on the iHeartRadio app. And if you download that app and type in our coordinates... You can take us with you anywhere you go. It is a pleasure to have those listeners on other radio stations that now carry Moment of Truth with us as well. Or if you're listening on our SoundCloud or your favorite podcast platform, welcome. It's great to have you with us. It's also a pleasure to welcome back to the show uh, Dr. Uh, Philip Loring. Now, I've had... Philip on the show, oh, about a month ago, and that was with another project that he is associated with called Coastal Roots Radio. And uh, he, as well as uh, Dr. Hannah Harrison and Emily DeSouza were on talking about Coastal Roots Radio. But today, it is a pleasure to have uh, Philip Loring with us to discuss his book. He has a book, and it is entitled Finding Our Niche Toward a Restorative Human Ecology. And it is from the initial conversation that I had in meeting uh, Philip that he offered to send me a copy of his book, and I was I was very gracious and, and honored that he would send it to me. I've been reading it, and I have to tell you, from the very first time I picked up the book, it was it was so full of stuff that I, I I couldn't just breeze through this thing. I had to read it very carefully and I found it very engaging and I found it very enlightening because it, it wasn't what I thought it was going to be. And so it's a pleasure to have Dr. Uh, Loring with us to talk about the book. And uh, so Dr. Loring, welcome to the show, first of all. Thanks, David. It's nice to be here. Now, I'd like to start a little bit about not not so much the book, but it will lead into the book, and that is how how you got into this line of work that you do. Because you know you are, of course, uh, the principal investigator for Coastal Roots Radio, but you're also a professor in the Department of Geography, Environment, and Geomatics at the uh, at the, the University of Guelph. That's right. And my training, incidentally, um, uh, through graduate school is in anthropology and ecology. And I did all of that training in Alaska, actually, at the University of Alaska Fairbanks, uh, where I um, lived and worked for about 10 years. And of course, a lot of that story is in the book that we'll talk about soon. Uh, but I, I went there, I moved there. Uh, it was quite a departure from my, uh, my previous life, which was as a computer programmer for first telecommunications and then healthcare. Uh, and, and while it was a good job and it paid the bills, it, it was very unfulfilling. And I, I, I shifted gears for, for a number of reasons. Now, the title of your book, Finding Our Niche, uh, Finding Our Niche, it, why, why choose that particular word? Well, there's a, a definitely as a social scientist, there's a, a noticeable influence of of ecology in this book. And, and I studied ecology in grad school. And one of the things, you know, when I moved to Alaska and I started taking graduate courses in ecology, I was really dismayed by it first was all of the beautiful metaphors that there are in ecology for how species relate to one another and relate to the rest of their environments. Mm. And niche is one of them. Niches, you know, there's 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 the the actual niche that all the different places, all the different environments a species could can live in. But then it's also its realized niche where it's living, and and it's not just like a house that you build that, that's yours and and 
and no one else's. A niche is sort of an intersection of all of these different species coexisting in time and space. And through really elegant, interesting interactions that, you know, mutualisms that I talk about in the book. And, and when I was taking these classes, I remember thinking to myself, you know, with the burden of environmental challenges of humanity sort of resting on my shoulders, wanting to make a difference in the world. I remember thinking to myself, why can't we have these beautiful relationships too? And the more time I spent thinking about it and talking to people and learning from people, I realized, well, we can. And where it starts is trying to relearn what our niches can be. Niches not that exclude everything else, but that work with Mm. everything else around us. Mm. You know, the other thing that you start off in the book by talking about is is when you say we, and and you, you were specifically pointing out how you are separating the mainstream uh, society uh, from the indigenous people? Well, I can only really speak for myself and, and I spend and, and my experience and identity as a settler right. uh, in North America. And, you know, my, my long heritage is from Scotland and Ireland. Um, I don't really connect with those places sort of in a meaningful way, going back to the importance of place, you know, cause I've only been there briefly. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's, you know, that's who I am here. And, and so when I, when I tell my stories, I'm telling my stories as a settler and I'm trying to understand sort of the riddles of how, you know, the, the problems created uh, through settler colonialism and, and reconcile what my own identity can be moving forward as somebody who wants to contribute to solutions. So, yeah, very much we is me speaking for, for myself as a settler, settler, you know, quote unquote, Western mm-hmm. culture. Yeah. And I thought that was that was interesting because, of course, you you do uh, talk greatly in the book about the indigenous perspective and you you talk about uh, people you've met and spent a great deal of time with. And and uh, and so that becomes, you know, quite important, not only to you, but to the to the book itself. Yeah, and it was interesting and a challenge at first writing the book because one of the things that I learned from some of the people that you mentioned, the very influential individuals that I met working, indigenous individuals that I met working in Alaska, was to recognize which stories were mine to tell and which ones weren't Mm. and how important it was understanding who was doing the telling, the situation, the context of the telling of a story. And so when I sat down to, to write this book, it it really troubled me, you know, to, it was something I spent a lot of time with thinking about what stories can I tell? And, and, you know, ultimately those stories are the stories about how I was moved and changed by these amazing individuals and not their stories per se, but my stories that, uh, that emerged through, through sort of living and, and spending time uh, with them. Uh, And in a couple of cases, the stories that I was gifted to tell, Mm -hmm. um, you know, by particular individuals. And just to to let people know about the book itself, it's broken up into, of course, chapters and and talking about alienation and the great forgetting. And you get into some really interesting stuff in that chapter alone. Um, And that's where we first, I I think, hear that, the the indigenous perspective. Now, the other thing that we also get introduced to in that chapter, of course, and this is what I mean by the depth that you start to to bring into the book, is we hear about Java Man. Mm-hmm. Right, which is a critical piece of history that, mm. that when we spend a little bit of time with it, we, we learn so much about how little we knew about ourselves. But when I say we, again, Western culture, the assumptions we made about the history of humanity until just very recent history, very recent scientific discoveries yeah. sort of have forced us to, to, to open our minds to, 
to what indigenous people have known about our histories all along. And it also, I think, reflects, of course, that whole thing about that you you are kind of, sort of trying to get to in the book, and that is challenging man himself to try and think differently. And it really points out that idea that of the challenges that that were brought up around the discovery of Java Man, and even after he he died, the man who who, who discovered this, uh, he was still sort of an outcast. That's right. And so, for the listeners who may not know the story, you know, uh, Java Man is is what we call the very first um, fossil finding of of more or less anatomically modern human. It was the, the once, once scientists had started to grapple with uh, recognizing evolution as something that, that involved humans, homo sapiens as well, um, there was a, a desire to find the quote-unquote missing link, to, to find fossil evidence that, that linked us to non-human, quote-unquote non-human primates. And, and Java Man was, you know, was an was a amazing find, uh, and it was hotly contested because there were a lot of, you know, a, a lot of people who thought there were a lot of stakes at, at not finding that missing link, at, at, you know, whether it was for, uh, for religious reasons or scientific skepticism. But there's a real, you're right, there's a real parallel there to, to what we have today. And this, we still have this sort of understanding of humanity uh, that, that in Western culture, anyway, we, you know, we blame ourselves for a lot. And at the same time, we treat ourselves as very exceptional cre- uh, mm. beings. And, and Java Man, the discovery and acceptance of the discovery of Java Man was, was was one of these key moments where we had an opportunity to say our history is different mm. than what we've been writing in textbooks, what we've been reading in, mm. in, 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 in religious doctrine. And, and what does that mean? Mm. What does that mean about how we organize our communities? What does that mean about how we relate to each other and the rest of the world? And a lot of people just didn't want to have that conversation. And a lot of people still don't want to have that conversation, which is why, you know, in the 21st century, we're, you know, I'm writing a book about it. Right. And then we go, you take us from Java Man looking into the past and you, you bolt us into the future by starting to talk about Star Trek. <laughs> which, which I well, you know, that's a, there's a lot of time depth to, to, to that transition, I realize, and, and I guess I hadn't realized it at first, but... But, you know, the, the understanding we have of the, you know, in Western culture of the exceptional nature of humanity is, is part and parcel to modern issues of colonialism and uh, space colonial aspirations that mm. we saw in the science fiction of the 60s and 70s, mm. of, you know, the natural extension into space of manifest destiny. Mm-hmm. And, and, and as a boy growing up with computers, at, you know, half of my time spent in front of a computer or ham radio and the other half spent outside, um, you know, I was, I was really struck by, you know, strange new worlds. And um, especially considering what I mentioned before, this fascination that I, I sort of was always sort of latent in me with place and connections to place. And, and so what we see in the culture of Star Trek about, about you know, posting our flag on planet after planet is, you know, at the time gave me a very different idea about what it meant to be a human and a hero and an explorer than, than, than I think what I have now. Yeah. And, and what I liked about the fact that you, when you brought in Star Trek is, is how you brought in that story, because you, you look at it very much like you look at the discovery of Java Man, for instance, where it challenges us to think about what are we really saying? What are we really looking at? And, and how are we perceiving these things? Um, you know, it, it, as I was making notes about this, I thought about the Borg. Right? It's another perfect example of, <laughs> of there. Uh, I remember when, when I first heard the two, I think, strongest statements that come out of the Borg. Resistance is fear. 
futile and you will be assimilated. Uh, you know, wow. Uh, they're, they're, that's, that's colonialism, right? That's, that's like, wow. That's yeah, that is the, you know, one of the, it was subtle in the original, more subtle and, mm. and not always there in the original series. But, but one of the things that I, I really feel Gene Roddenberry uh, did an amazing job with when he, you know, starting the, the next generation, the way he did with it, with an overt um, story about the dangers of colonialism and um, imperial sort of supremacy uh, that was bold. Mm. Um, and it was one of, you know, probably one of the things that, that helped me start to wake up a little bit to how these, these ideas we have about ourselves and the future in space uh, really do sort of embody this continued sort of spirit of, of domination and supremacy. Mm. Here we are start talking about Star Trek, and I want to let everyone know that you're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa, and uh, this is Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. My guest is author Dr. Philip Loring, and he is a widely respected anthropologist, ecologist, and writer, and his work focuses on the intersection of sustainability, food systems, and social justice. And he is particularly interested in solutions where people and ecosystems thrive together, which really ties in, of course, with the book that we are talking about that he has written called Finding Our Niche Toward a Restorative Human Ecology. Philip, you pull a quote, chapter two, pristine. You start that chapter, of course, with a quote from Richard Nelson, who I understand his book, The The Island Within, is also from Alaska. Uh, mm-hmm. It's a book that he wrote about studying that area, as well as the indigenous people, uh, one of the indigenous people from that area. And what I thought was really interesting was uh, uh, the book says it's often thought that the forest is a living cathedral and then it goes on to say that it's its sacredness itself and I believe of course that indigenous people view the world and and everything as a sacredness um, and and, to, and it should be treated as such so I thought it was interesting that you're you're quoting this guy <laughs> and it's not to take away from anything from that but it's interesting that we we find this throughout history that it's people that are that are writing it down that are that are are making these points. However, indigenous people have been viewing it this way just just living mm-hmm. that. Yeah, it's it's a really tremendous point, and and you know you know we're you know, um, Richard Nelson and 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 he's passed. He was an amazing writer and spent many many years. Um, it, as a naturalist and an anthropologist in Alaska. And, and, you know, this book, the Island within was the one where he turned sort of his, his gaze into himself and to, to understand mm. how his life has been changed through the work, which was a bit of an inspiration for why there's so much personal reflection in finding our niche. And, and I struggled, you know, with, with the, the contradiction almost that you're mentioning that, that, you know, like, you know, here I am, um, you know, quoting and citing another white male for for an idea that um, that is sort of inherent um, in countless indigenous teachings, and 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 it's a balance. You know, it was a balance for me to respect and honor the storytellers that I learned from uh, in telling my own story because it was reading the island within that was mm-hmm. part of the story that got mm-hmm. me where I am. Mm-hmm. Um, but but also trying to acknowledge the fact that this is you know these, this is not a new. You're right. This is not a new discovery. Uh, it's more of of a Admitting that we're 
uh, we're undergoing a bit of an awakening and, and, and I try as I go through this book to, um, you know, again, without telling other people's stories for them, um, transition, uh, as the book moves on and it's my own story and it moves on transition to, um, relying on the words of, of indigenous authors, for example, Robin Wall Kimmerer. You know, one of the other things that I remember, uh, and it might have been happening, and I might have been thinking about this person that you mentioned in the book right about the same time that his name came up. And I'm not sure if that's that's actually true or not. I'm just thinking it felt like it was right. And the person I'm talking about that you mentioned is Joseph Campbell, uh, mm-hmm. you know, and 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 his book, uh, and, and of course the teachings and things that he brought forward um, about myth. And, and of course uh, I, I was going, yeah, I'm glad you, I'm glad you put him in here. Well, you know, and uh, Joseph Campbell was one of, one of my early discoveries when I was doing my undergraduate degree in philosophy and, and I, I learned a lot from from the power of myth, mm. um, a hero with a thousand faces. Mm. Both both at the time, in terms of sort of the more practical understandings of of what the hero's journey is, and how we see that in science fiction, how we see it in Star Wars, which Joseph Campbell, of course, loved to talk about Star Wars, <laughs> um, and and the hero's journey that that Luke mm. Skywalker undergoes, mm-hmm. and and but I also you know the thing that that Joseph Campbell I think was was alluding to in some of his other writings was 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 how you know the most powerful myths in our lives are the ones that don't need to be retold to be completely understood and agreed with mm. and and that i realized and i i learned from revisiting his work much later and 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 the kinds of myths i didn't realize the kinds of myths he was talking about until i started to grapple with this myth of of humanity as being this broken, naturally unsustainable, unsustainable, flawed being that is destined to only have negative relationships with the rest of the world, mm. that we're always going to damage, that if we want to be sustainable, we have to minimize our impact because our impact's always going to be bad. Um, and, and I realized in, in sort of, again, working with Indigenous people who have lived for, you know, in, in their words since time immemorial with a very different set of principles and practices and patterns of and ways of being with, you know, living in their own niches, um, that, that this was one of those myths that Joseph Campbell was talking about. It's the one we see in the tragedy of the commons. It's the one we see in sort of mainstream conservation that says the only way to keep a place natural is to build a fence around it and move everybody off of it. Mm. And, and everybody just agrees with that. It's one of these Joseph Campbell powerful myths that doesn't ever need to be told to be agreed with. Right. You know, on that idea, and it's one of the things that I thought, wow, we could really just expand on this one forever and ever. And it kind of goes hand in hand with what you were just talking about there. Um, I'm just going to read a little bit of this. It's not very surprising that we think about ourselves as destroyers of nature. Humans have become extremely good at causing environmental problems. And, And, you know, that whole idea of yeah, are we are we that flawed? Are we destined to, uh, you know, remain like this? Can we not change? Can we not better ourselves? Can we not find a better way? What is holding us back? Why why are we why are we inherently greedy? You know, all those questions that you kind of grapple with in here as well. And I thought, do you think that's something that each and every one of us have to do? on this planet in order to come to some kind of an understanding of, of how we can move ourselves forward to live in harmony with this planet. 
I, I really think that we do. That, and I think it, it's tenfold at least more important than, say, coming up with the next scientific revolution for achieving sustainability. I think that reflection um, and, and spending time, more time with trying to understand who we really are is, uh, it's, it's the foundation it has to be. Um, and, um, and it can be so generative as, as it's challenging, no doubt, but it can also be so generative, which is what I learned in, in, in work, you know, working through this book that, that, you know, the, it's a lot of how, a lot of the unspoken aspects of how we understand our, ourselves and our lives and our reality um, and what it takes to be a good person and what it takes to be successful. Uh, these are, you know, these aren't things that were explained to us in overt terms necessarily, but they were kind of whispered in our ear by the world around us. And a lot mm-hmm. of them are, are really ultimately problematic in terms of how we treat one another, how we treat our non-human neighbors and the rest of the natural world. And uh, if we give ourselves a little space to realize it doesn't have to be this way, that, that the, the, the problems that we see around us are, are not inherent problems that we need to try to avoid, but they're problems that aspects of our lives that have created, right? It's, I, I want to flip, you know, the, the introspection allows us to flip it upside down. Like I mentioned, you know, the notion of the tragedy of the commons. Garrett Hardin mm-hmm. talked about, you know, this idea that we would, when left to our own devices, we would always destroy nature um, and we mm-hmm. needed strong governance. Mm-hmm. Um, and the people who have critiqued that have still always sort of hardened, which, you know, um, was a pr- very particularly um, racist individual with with ties to white supremacist organizations but um, even the people who have critiqued Hardin's basic thesis still phrase it as though this tragedy is something that we need to solve as opposed to saying what is it about our lives that's creating this pattern of behavior Mm. because it's not the state of nature for us Mm. and and that you can only get to that sort of reconciliation with yourself and who we are and what our potential is through introspection Mm-hmm. Uh, you can't just sort of you, you can't do a scientific study to prove it to people, right. if that makes sense. Right. Now, I want to let also people know that uh, this book, the Finding Our Niche uh, by uh, Philip Loring, has also now received an award for the Nautilus Book Awards. He's received a silver award, so congratulations, uh, Philip, on that. Thanks for that. I, and I was particularly pleased, you know, one, the um, Gleb Bregoradetsky is an author mm. who wrote a wonderful book called Archipelago of Hope, which yes. a couple of years ago when it was published, won their gold medal. And uh, I was really, really thrilled when they reached out to him to be a reader of this before it was published. And he actually provides back matter on the, on the book. And so to be, you know, just to get this um, award and sort of be in, in the great company um, that I am with him. I, it's, yeah. It was a really lovely surprise during some <laughs> some challenging pandemic times. Yeah, I bet. And uh, he does give a, a wonderful quote uh, for your book. Uh, so congratulations on that. Thanks. Now, you, you know, one of the characters we meet in the book is Pat Smith. And I was, uh, do you want to talk briefly about him? Yeah, I would, I would love to, you know, Pat, um, Patrick Smith was the when I first met him was the chief of a small village in interior Alaska called Minto, um, a small Korikon Athabascan community. And I originally visited uh, Minto, which was about a three-hour drive up a really bumpy dirt road from Fairbanks, Alaska, um, to to talk about community gardening, which <laughs> very very early days of my graduate work was going to be the focus of my research. And um, and Patrick became 
Pat became a really, really close friend. I spent a lot of time with him up in the Minto Flats, uh, in the woods around his community, out on the water, helping him get firewood, um, with, also with his, his son, Pat Jr. And, and it was a really sort of transformative friendship for me. And, and he was, you know, he had a bit of, at the time, he was both a friend and a father figure. I was still, um, at that point in my life, um, avoiding and not coping with the, the passing of my own dad. And, mm. and, you know, the very first day that I met Pat, uh, I was supposed to go up there and talk to him about gardening. And what I ended up doing is helping him build uh, two caskets for community members who had passed away. And mm. so we got introduced to one another on this very sort of very unique terms and around a very somber occasion. Um, but it was, you know, it, it sparked a great friendship. And, and um, I think that, you know, I would like to think that I helped him with some things throughout the friendship and he certainly helped me uh, with a lot uh, and, and gave a lot of himself to me and, and helped me think about what grief is, what healing is and, and how to extend that from myself also to my relationship with, others into the world. Mm. You know, as I said, Philip, there's so much in this book that we could talk about and, and we haven't really gotten that far into the book and we've t- talked about so much already. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I just want to mention this before we finish up. As I said, this is part one of two interviews that I'll be doing with Philip Loring on his book, Finding Our Niche. So please stay tuned for part two when we get into that. But there's other things in here, you know, chapter the chapter on Keystone and the Burren, that ties into your, your uh, Scottish and Irish heritage that you mentioned earlier and going to, to talk about that and and um you know the, these wonderful things that that keystone even that uh, even that kind of uh the design that you talk about uh the arch that holds it together and and uh, this this burn area that becomes very important throughout this whole book um i know so there's lots to talk about do you want to briefly touch on that yeah, sure. And this is another of the metaphors in the book and, and one of the brilliant metaphors from ecology that I think could be so powerful if we allow them into our own lives. And, you know, the, the Burren is an amazing, rocky, craggy, green landscape in Western Ireland. And for the last you know decade or so, they've uh, farmers there have been revitalizing a, a very traditional grazing practice that goes back 7,000 years, um, but that had been discontinued for a, a number of years because people had moved to more, quote unquote, modern practices. But the move to modern practices, which took the cows off of this landscape, um, they actually graze there traditionally in the wintertime. It's called a winterage. Uh, by taking them off of the land, uh, it, it pulled a keystone off of the land. And so invasive scrubs started to take over and other plants and animals started to get choked out and water quality started to change and fire hazards changed. And so there was this sort of this, you know, a lot of people today, you know, talk in very contested ways about cows, but this was an example where taking cows off of the land that the burn was not the burn without cows and cattle farmers. Mm. And so I went back there and I've spent, I have visited twice now to talk to people and learn about this revitalization of this old cultural practice. And it's a really amazing example of how people are, and they call it farming with nature. And um, that's a, there's a movement across Europe now called farming with nature. Mm. And the whole premise is to understand the patterns and to look for things like keystones and, and recognize that, that if we pay attention, and if we look at the indicators in the world around us and, and we can find these win-win scenarios where we can link our health and well-being and even economic prosperity with the health and well-being of the land. 
Right. Philip, it's been fascinating speaking with you. I thank you for taking the time to join us. I wish we had much, much more time to talk more, but we are going to have a part two to this. Maybe we'll have a part three. Who knows? Um, (laughs) We'll see how it goes. But uh, our time is up. And I just want to thank you again for coming on the show and talking about your your book, Finding Our Niche. Congratulations on the award for the Nautilus Book Awards, where you've received a silver award for that. And um, we wish you all the best with this. And I certainly hope a lot of people uh, find their way to this book and and find their way to read it because it, it's a lot of it's great reading and it's interesting it's a lot of fun like I said especially if you're a Star Trek fan but um, also it's got some val- really valuable information in here to make us think and to make everybody think about how can we uh, live more closely with this planet that that keeps us alive we have to find a way to do that so Philip uh, thank you very much and I look forward to having you back on the show again Yeah, thank you. And I I really do look forward to continuing the conversation. All right. Take care. That is Dr. Philip Loring, a widely respected anthropologist, ecologist, and writer. We've been talking to him about his book, Finding Our Niche Toward a Restorative Human Ecology. Imagine a world where humanity was not destined to cause harm to the natural world, where win-win scenarios, people and nature thriving together are possible. I'm your host, David Moses. Thanks for listening to Moment of Truth. Don't go away, though. We're going to be right back with more right after this. Now back to Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. Welcome back to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa, 95.7 in Ottawa, 106.5 in Toronto. And of course, uh, If you download the iHeartRadio app, punch in our coordinates, you can take us with you anywhere you go. I'd also like to welcome listeners on other radio stations that now carry Moment of Truth. Always a pleasure to have people joining us on other stations as well as on your favorite podcast, if you're listening from there, or on our SoundCloud. And it is a pleasure to welcome to the show Dr. Shailene Jobin. She is the Canada Research Chair in Indigenous Governance, the co-lead of Wakantawin Law and Governance Lodge, and the Associate Professor at the Faculty of Native Studies at the University of Alberta. We are also joined by Tanya Capo. She's the daughter of the late Harold Cardinal and one of the executive producers of the film, which we're going to be talking about today, which is Beating Red, the red paper through generations. And it's a 15-minute documentary film that was created to commemorate the 50-year anniversary of the red paper presentation. And uh, putting a new light on this uh, time period, the film highlights the important roles of Indigenous women and talks about the importance of familiar relationships through Wakantuin or relationships embedded in Indigenous beadwork. And I had a pleasure, I had the pleasure of watching this 15-minute video and I recommend anyone go to see this because it is a fascinating look at 50 years ago, what was happening with in 1970 when the Indigenous Chiefs of Alberta and the leadership from the Indian Association of Alberta's President, Harold Cardinal, presented Citizens Plus to the Right Honourable Pierre Elliott Trudeau, if that name sounds familiar to you, his son, of course, now being Prime Minister, and, uh, and the, the Government of Canada, Citizens Plus, also known as the Red Paper, delivered a powerful rejection of and counter-proposal to Canada's Department of Indian Affairs, the 1969 Statement of the Government of Canada on Indian Policy 
a white paper which would have fundamentally changed the relationship between Canada and First Nations people. So it's a pleasure to have Dr. Shailene Jobin and Tanya Tapo with us here on the show. Ladies, welcome. Thank you. So thank you both for for joining us on the show. And, uh, you know, this this video, it, it really is wonderful. And I love the way that it ties in the importance of beating. How did you guys come up with this idea? Well, um, yeah. So uh, this is Shailene. Uh, Tanya approached uh, me in December of 2019. We were at a Wakotuan Law and Governance Lodge event, and she uh, said that um, the uh, the 50th anniversary of the presentation was happening on June 4th, 2020. And so she said it would be great to work in partnership um, to develop an event or something to commemorate uh, uh, the historic event of the 50th anniversary. And then, uh, so we started meeting and then COVID hit. Mm. And uh, so we couldn't meet in person uh, last June. And um, so we thought perhaps uh, we could do uh, a, a video. All right. Tanya, what did you think of that idea? I thought it was great. Um, I was really kind of disappointed that we couldn't uh, do more things because of COVID. So I was extremely happy that we could still continue on with at least the video. And um, I think the video ended up being a very wonderful project because it's sort of a legacy piece. You know, it's something that exists. It's not just like an event that happens and then everyone goes away. This is something that people can continue um, to look at and, and generations can watch from here on in. Yes, absolutely. And and people can go to watch this online. For instance, if people punch in Beating Red, is it, will it come up and send them a link? Yes, it should. If they, uh, on YouTube, if they Google Beating Red, it should come up. And as I said, it's 15 minutes, so it doesn't take a long time, but it sure is full of great information around. It's wonderful just how it ties in the beating and and gives us this great history at the same time. Yeah, beating was uh, a very important part of not just, I guess, our identity on my family side, both my grandmothers. You'll see in the film that my sister Tara, um, in our family, she's the one who's sort of taken on uh, that art um, to a very beautiful level. So she has a lot of connections to make with her beadwork um, to the past and even in, in terms of the red paper and even in her current life. But I think that um, for the film, the importance of the beadwork was really also to emphasize um, the women's involvement, you know, mm. women were, were quite involved in, in the red paper and, and the sort of politics of the day. And much of the financing that took place to sort of enable the leadership to do what they did was through the selling of arts and crafts. And so that's another important element of the beadwork to the story of the red paper. When you came up with this idea about making the video and with COVID hitting, was the idea to always tie in beading work to the red paper? Was that something you guys had as an idea from the get-go? 
Not specifically, no, but we, we had early on um, conversations uh, talking about, you know, what, what it could look like, mm. what we would like to see in the film. And it just sort of emerged immediately as something that needed to be part of um, the whole story that the video would present. That must have been pretty exciting, I would guess, because it's, it is something that is physically seen on the garments that are being worn in the, in the film. Yeah, I think also one of the other parts was um, at at the time when my dad was sort of when he was leading the IAA, Mm. part of one of his sort of calling cards, I guess, was the fact that he would always come dressed either in a buckskin coat or, or a beaded tie. So that was always very much part of that element as well. Yeah. Now, Shailene, when when this idea about tying in the beading and the red paper uh, with the 50th anniversary, um, what was that like for you as, a, as an idea to expand and work from? Yeah, I um, it was it was a great idea. And I think one of the things we talked on about initially was how generally when we uh, talk about this time, there's Um, A, that a lot of people in uh, the younger generation of Indigenous people don't necessarily uh, know this story. And so uh, for our generation and and future generations, the importance of passing down these important moments in time for Indigenous organizing. But also um, that uh, one of the things Tanya has has said is that oftentimes we need to expand the stories as well. And so thinking about Indigenous women at that time and First Nations women and and their uh, organizing and their um, supportive roles at that time was was something that we don't hear enough about. So it was neat to tie that in. Yeah, and and it's also neat because it's not just the beating itself. It's the fact that we get the backstory, of course, behind the importance of beating. So there's, there's this connection built right into that. Yeah, for sure. And the other interesting piece is uh, Jerome Slavic was interviewed during the film and worked for the Indian Association. And and he had gifted uh, serendipitously uh, last year or two years ago, one of Agnes uh, Cardinal's beaded jackets to the faculty of NATO studies where I work. And, and so he had bought that jacket. Uh, from Agnes and Agnes would sometimes sell some of her beadwork to finance um, some of the work of of Harold Cardinal. So for the travel costs and and that sort of thing. And 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 so that's an interesting part of the the story that we don't hear enough about. Hmm. Tanya, you, your dad, Harold Cardinal, played a very important role. Of course. What what do you remember of him? Um, Well, I think one of the important things I think that was also very much in our minds when we were talking about um, what the film could look like is um, his insistence that the red paper and and the work around that wasn't just his. It, It wasn't only him you know he's very much attributed to the red paper and and rightly so but he wasn't the only one and he was always um the first one to acknowledge that and try to really put it out there that the red paper was a collective effort you know it was the indian association of alberta it involved elders throughout alberta and leadership throughout alberta it wasn't just a harold cardinal thing it was an indian association of alberta 
Alberta thing. And that was kind of um, something that we talked about in, in thinking about the content of the film and hoping that one of the things we're hoping that it does, I guess, is to sort of open the door to talking about the bigger story that, that people start to think about um, the red paper and the context of their own lives and maybe in their own families. You know, it's not only a part of my family history, it's a part of many people's family history. And hopefully that people will start to think about that and more of the story will be spoken and talked about and shared and, and really grow that sort of narrative and important part in our history. And I think that's something that always comes to my mind about my dad is that he wanted to make sure that people knew that it was a collective effort. Mm. And, and the name, as you pointed out, The Red Paper, uh, I, I found out because at the end of the film, I saw a very familiar name to us here at, at Element FM, uh, Krista Couture, uh, being credited with a photo credit. So I said to her, I said, hey, Krista, you, you're credited with a, a photo. And she said, oh, yeah, um, because my dad is credited with the, the coming up with the name, uh, The Red Paper. Yeah, that was really interesting. Um, Louis uh, Cardinal, my cousin, he talks about that in the film about uh, his recollection from her father, Joe, on, on how the red paper name came to be. And um, I always used to think it was sort of, you know, my, my dad's sort of cheekiness, his cleverness was to to take something and just sort of give it uh, an ironic spin, mm. such as the, the Just Society at the time, which was Pierre Trudeau's um, campaigning, and then ultimately his book became The Unjust right. Society, you right. know? So that's always that, that cleverness behind our leaders at the time and, and what they were thinking and, and how they were approaching things. Yeah, it's very simple, but it's also very effective. Totally. The word Wakantuin, um, I understand, means relations or relationship. Well, I think, uh, well, it's a Cree word and it's Wakotuin. And it doesn't mean just one thing. It, it's a really um, a concept that means many things. And with any indigenous language, it's, it's, it's often hard to translate the meaning of these important words into sort of one meaning. But I guess to generally explain the concept of it, I think relationships is, is an, an okay generalization. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That's 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa. You can also be listening on the iHeartRadio app if you download the app and uh, punch in our coordinates. You can take us with you anywhere you go. You might also be listening on one of the other radio stations carrying a moment of truth. We thank you for listening. My guests here on the show are Dr. Shailene Jobin. She is the Canada Research Chair in Indigenous Governance and the Associate Professor in the Faculty of Native Studies at the University of Alberta. As well, we have with us Tanya Capo. She's the daughter of the late Harold Cardinal and one of the executive producers of the film, which we're talking about, entitled Beating Red, the Red Paper Through Generations. It's a 15-minute documentary film created to commemorate the 50-year anniversary of the Red Paper presentation. And you can see this online. And if you go to YouTube and Google Beating Red, that should come up for you to watch this 15-minute video. And it is very 
entertaining as well as educational, and you might also be encouraged to then find out more about the red paper. And you can go find out and read the red paper、uh, if you Google red paper, and you will get a link to that as well. And Citizens Plus is the other word that comes up out of this、uh, this red paper in 1970 with the Indian chiefs of Alberta,、uh, the leadership under、uh, President Harold Cardinal, in answer to the white paper that was being presented. Now I also understand that. It was because of the red paper and answer to the white paper that went on to make changes in future documents with with the Canadian government.、Um, so one of the things that I think is really interesting is is、um, there's also a history with、uh, the idea of Citizens Plus, and so there was this Hawthorne report that was written,、mm-hmm. and there's a, a political scientist. Uh, uh, his name was Alan Cairns, and he was part of that. And he's written different books, and and he also talks about this idea of Citizens Plus. But but how、um, the Indian Association of Alberta, how they framed Citizens Plus in the red paper, was was through the lens of treaty. So so、uh, the plus of Citizens Plus wasn't an individual citizenship to belonging to Canada. It was a collective citizenship through、um, the number. Treaties that were negotiated between the British Crown that became、uh, the Canadian state, and、um, for example, Treaty Eight,、um, Cree Dene people. Would, would one of you like to elaborate more on on this whole thing around the white paper and red paper? I think the white paper was really trying to push for the removal of what.、Um, They were sort of terming as "quote special rights" that、um, Indians, as as they were known at、mm. the time, had, and and those would be what、uh, they were trying to term as.、Um, they were actually treaty rights, and they're not special rights.、Mm. And so the white paper was trying to. Propose this idea of equality that、um, everybody should be treated equal, and and this was part of、um, the narrative at the time, I guess, of the Just Society and Trudeau. This e- notion of equality, but this was not、um, something that would be acceptable for First Nations because Canada's proposal for equality was to remove、um, the treaty rights that.、Um, First Nations people had, so I think、uh, the leadership of the day saw that、um, that treaty was under attack, basically、mm. in this white paper, and, and needed to respond to that and, and talk about why、um, it was necessary to continue to have the treaty and why the treaty was so important. And so that was what the red paper response was. It was a very meticulous response to the white paper and responded to each of the proposals that the white paper was suggesting at the time. Do you think that the government was taken by surprise with the red paper response? I want to say yes,、um, and I, I say that because I feel like the federal government, at any point in time, always underestimates、um, Indigenous people, and I feel like any time that there's any kind of、um, Resistance or, or, or counter presentation, they they feel like they maybe 
weren't expecting it because they aren't known to think too highly of Indigenous people, um, in my opinion. Hmm. And, and really, at, at certain times in the Indian Act, it was illegal to hire a lawyer yeah. for a First Nations person. It was illegal to, to organize. And so, and so it, in, in 1970, it wasn't that many years previous where, where that sort of organizing or, you know, legal response uh, wasn't even allowed because of the Indian Act. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Now, you, you also, uh, Shailene, mentioned the Hawthorne Report. I think uh, the leaders were strategic in using some of that language. Yeah, and I think that it's also important to note that the, the Hawthorne Report was a study that was commissioned by the federal government um, prior to the white paper. So the federal government wanted to sort of do a study of, of the Indians at the time, a social economic kind of study. And the author of the report was Harry Hawthorne. And that's why it's called the Hawthorne Report. And at the end of his report, he concluded that um, First Nations people needed to be regarded as citizens plus. And so that was sort of that play again, the cleverness of our leadership to call the red paper, its, its official name is called Citizens Plus, And that comes from the Hawthorne Report. Shailene, any, any other uh, comments on that? Well, well, it just, I, I really love uh, Tanya saying that that strategic and that kind of um, tongue-in-cheekness of, you know, calling it, uh, calling it Citizens Plus, mm. almost, you know, shaming the federal government at the time for how, how dare you put out this, this white paper mm. that, that goes against this report you just commissioned. Like, <laughs> how ridiculous is this? So, yeah, just the strategy and the cleverness of you know, First Nations and Indigenous people in in dealing with um, with the frustration that must have been there. Mm. Um, yeah, I, I just I just love I love that piece of it too. The yeah, the tongue in cheekness of it. And it's wonderful going back to the idea of this uh, this video, a beating red, because it it ties in all of these things we're talking about and brings it down to a very a simple level and and a level that is that is nice to watch to get the sense of the beating work that is important bringing in that idea as you point out about the importance of the role of women and what they were doing throughout this as well and uh, and bringing it right down to the role of 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 the presentation of wearing these jackets of wearing uh, these beaded jackets um, and and what that meant to the time of this this important work going on Tanya? Yeah, absolutely. I, I'm really, I can't watch the film without feeling all kinds of emotions. Hmm. Shailene? Yeah, um, uh, Tara Capo, we had a, a panel presentation on Friday afternoon and, and, and Tara Capo at the end talked about it as a love story. And I, yeah. I just, I just, um, that's such beautiful words when we when um we think of agnes cardinal her love for her family and for her her people you know goes into that beadwork and it also shows um as as lewis talks about in the film it speaks to treaty and it speaks to family and it also speaks to 
I think a layered understanding of what treaty uh, means from from a Cree perspective. Mm. Uh, Tanya, what do you hope that that this beating red film will will do? I hope that it will start conversations about um, our history at the time. I, I find for myself personally, you know, um, there are still many people alive uh, these days who were there in the late 60s who can share firsthand um stories of, of mm. what they saw and what they heard and what they felt and, you know, all these kinds of things and, and other family members who have gone on but have passed down their stories um, of that time. So what I'm hoping is that um, a bigger narrative evolves from this. And for myself personally, I would love to see a more fulsome telling of our story of the red paper from a more collective approach. So these conversations um, that I hope that will follow this will begin to fill in those blanks and sort of satiate my, my starvation to hear about, you know, that moment in time that was very impactful for all Indigenous people um, right up until today. Yeah, I'm glad you pointed that out, because although this is the Indian Association of Alberta that we're talking about that that took this initiative, it did have impact right across the country for Indigenous people. Yeah, and I'm really, I'm really wanting to hear the stories of that right from across the country. Mm, That would be great to to get a response like that. Uh, Dr. Shaleen, do you guys have any other plans for moving this film forward or, or getting it out there somewhere? Uh, Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, So one of the things uh, we did is we did a a recommended um, resource list and reading list. Mm -hmm. And so with different uh, PDF files and audio files um, that that uh, people who are interested can learn more. Um, So that's something that we've produced. Um, Another thing that we're thinking of is is kind of a, a phase two uh, process. So mm. maybe there's a teaching guide that we developed to go along with this video to, to help people that maybe want to teach it in, in schools or universities um, that that has some of those resources. And then um, as Ken is talking, uh, <laughs> uh, she's, she's planting these seeds in my brain for maybe a, a phase two of, of, of how we could facilitate some of those larger conversations. Speaking of larger conversations, just the idea of bringing it down to that very simple level of beading and the importance of what beadwork can do. And, and, you know, I I can't help but think about that very important hands-on effect that beading can have that people may be stimulated to find out and, and create more interest. I know that you guys, when you had the, the live event, you gave away some beading kits. And I'm wondering about if that's going to stimulate more interest in, in the, the actual beading work. I think so. I, I find that over the last few years, for sure, maybe a little bit longer, there has been 
such a resurgence of, of beadwork mm. um, that, uh, you know, across the country, so many people are, are taking it up and the, the pieces that are being produced are, are absolutely stunning. Mm. And, and you're starting to see, you can really start to tell now from the different beading styles of, of mm. where the person is from, because each area seems to have a particular style of beadwork, whether it's a design or the actual style of beading it's really you know something that is growing more and more and even if you just go on instagram you can see all kinds of wonderfully beaded items um it's just amazing so i i really feel like um the, the bringing out of the beadwork piece here will connect with many who are starting to reclaim their traditional um art of beadwork in their own style nicely and, so, yep sorry shailene go ahead yeah, and the other the other piece of that is is i think when we when we think of uh, the 1969 uh, white paper and then the 1970 red paper. There's there's this um, uh, Canada doesn't seem to um, understand a First Nations perspective of treaty or and and so we can see through the beadwork. It's it's one eye into an indigenous worldview and those teachings that come out in that material culture of, of what's beaded and how it's done and the ethic of that, that, that also teaches us a, a deeper layer of understanding of, of treaty from that perspective. And so, and so you can just see also, um, uh, yeah, how, how complex these systems of knowledge are that, that, um, that it's so important to understand. Hmm. Style, story, and history all wrapped up in there in the beadwork. Yeah, it goes back to sort of the idea of a legacy piece, you mm. know, a generational, a generational object for some, a family heirloom, you know, all kinds of important things that a piece of beadwork carries with it through the generations and how those prayers that went into it at that time when the person gets to wear that beadwork those prayers are still with um that work and with that person nicely said we'll have to leave it there dr shailene jobin and uh, tanya capo thank you so much for joining us on the show and and talking about beading red and uh and taking the time to join us to do so thank you for inviting us you bet thank you Take care. That is our show for today. Thank you for joining us, and we look forward to having you back with us again tomorrow. This has been Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM.